Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. This is your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. Today we're going to be reading Chapter 2 of Preexistence, going over what they call a scriptural review, pages 5 through 31. The reader portion of this program is a little over one hour. So it's one hour and three minutes. So we're going to have to get right into this because it's going to be a long episode. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And the phone lines will be open during this recorded part of the show. Uh, you have to wait till after the recording to, to come on for any questions or comments for a live, but um, if you have any questions or comments for me uh, and you'd like them to be off the air, then I will have the phone lines open for you. All right, well, let's get into this an hour and three minutes long. Scriptural Review, Chapter 2 of Preexistence, pages 5 through 31. Scriptural Review, Chapter 2 of Preexistence, pages 5 to 31. The best scriptural review ever written on the subject of preexistence was first published by the Apostle Osen Pratt in 1853 in the He's rather lengthy, but thorough presentation is so reasonable and clear that it should leave no doubt on the biblical support of that doctrine. This chapter contains extensive excerpts from Elder Pratt's treatise, The Three Existence of Man, excerpts, by Apostolos and Pratt is published in the sea. Life and intelligence are not the result of organization, but they are the cause, and, therefore, they must exist before the effects can follow. Our bodies are formed from the dust of the death but are our spirits made from the same materials. If they were, then they would, at death, return to dust. But if they are not reduced to dust, like the body, they must be formed of materials far superior to those of the earth. Where did those materials come from? They came from God. Solomon, when speaking upon the subject of death, says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. According to this passage, the spirit has, not an earthly origin, but a heavenly one. It came from God and it returns to God. God who gave it, also receives it back into his presence. Could the spirit return to God, if it never were in his presence? Could we return to a place where we never were before? If, then, the spirits of men existed with God, and came from him to animate mortal bodies, 
They must either be created in heaven at the time the infant tabernacles are being formed, or else they existed before. Inasmuch as scripture informs us that the spirit of man existed with God, and came from him, and returned to him, it is reasonable to believe that its formation took place at a period interior to the organization of the body. This period of pre-existence must have been sufficiently long to have educated and instructed the spirit in the laws and order of government, pertaining to the spiritual world, to have rendered itself approved or disapproved by those laws, to have been tried in all points, according to its capacities and knowledge, and the free agency which always accompanies and forms a part of the nature of intelligent beings. In fine, the period of pre-existence must have been sufficiently long to have constituted a probationary state, or that first estate wherein the spirits are on trial, and may fall, and be reserved in chains of darkness unto the judgment of the great day. The pre-existence of man is a doctrine which was believed by the ancients. The disciples of Jesus, when observing a man who had been blind from his birth, put the following question to their master, Would you sin, this man, or his parents, that he was born blind? It is evident, from the nature of this question, that the disciples considered it possible for a man to sin before he was born, and that in consequence of such sin, he might be born blind. This passage shows most clearly, that the disciples, not only believed in the pre-existence of man, but believed that he was an intelligent agent, governed by laws which he was capable of obeying or disobeying, and that his sins in his former state might be the cause of his being born blind and that his condition in his present state was affected by his acts in the former state. The Saviour, in replying to this question, says, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, if the pre-existence of man were not a true doctrine, why did not our Saviour take this opportunity to correct the ideas of his disciples, by telling them that the blind man could not sin before he was born? Why did he merely tell them that his blindness was not the effects of the sins of himself or parents? Why did he still leave the impression upon their minds that the blind man had a pre-existence? Jesus, himself, believed in pre-existence, for he said, I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. And, again, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus prays thus, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. From these sayings, we perceive that the spiritual body of Jesus existed before the world was. Having proved that the pre-existence of man is reasonable and scriptural, we shall next prove that this pre-existence can be traced back or period before the foundation of the world. The Lord asked a question of Job in relation to this matter, he inquires. Where waste thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? If Job has no prior existence, he could have easily answered the Lord's first question. He could have replied, that, when the foundations of the earth were laid, I, Job, did not exist. The very question implies that Job was in existence at the time of the organization of the globe, but that he had not sufficient understanding as to the place where he existed to correctly answer the question put to him. Neither could he remember who laid the cornerstone thereof, 
Neither could he recollect the song of the morning stars. Neither could he call to mind the shout of joy which was uttered by the vast assembly of all the sons of God. Jesus calls himself the bright and morning star. And in another place, he represents himself the beginning of the creation of God. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and dash the firstborn of every creature. As Jesus is the firstborn son of God, it is evident that all the other sons of God would be his younger brethren, begotten by the same father. Therefore Paul represents him as the firstborn among many brethren. And in another place, he says, both he that sanctified and they who are sanctified are all at one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That the brethren, he is spoken of, are the sons of God, begotten by the same father that Jesus was, is evident from another saying of the apostle, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits, and live? Our earthly fathers are called, the fathers of our flesh, while God is called, the father of spirits. Earthly fathers have no power to beget spirits, they beget only the bodies of flesh, or the tabernacles, while our heavenly father begets the spirits, or the living beings which come from him to inhabit the tabernacles. The firstborn of all this great family of spirits, holds, by virtue of his birthright, a preeminence in all things. Hence it is written, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. The oldest spirits or the first begotten hold the keys of salvation towards all the rest of the family of spirits. The firstborn spirit is called the morning star, because he was born in the morning of creation, or in other words, because he was the beginning of the creation of God. His younger brethren were called morning stars, because they were also born in the morning of creation, being the next in succession in the order of the spiritual creation. Objections have been raised against the pre-existence of man upon the ground that we do not remember such existence, or any event connected therewith. It is true, we do not remember anything prior to our present state, but this does not prove that we had no prior existence. We do not remember our existence or anything else, during the first six months of our infancy. Does this prove that we did not exist during that time? No. If, then, we could exist six months, during our present state without remembering it, we might, for the same reason, have existed during six thousand years prior to our present state, and not remember it. Existence is in no way dependent on memory, therefore, memory has nothing to do with the question of our past state. When Jesus was born into our world, his previous knowledge was taken from him, this was occasioned by his spiritual body being compressed into a smaller volume than it originally occupied. In his previous existence, his spirit, as the scriptures testify, was of the size and form of man. When this spirit was compressed, so as to be wholly enclosed in an infant tabernacle, it had a tendency to suspend the memory, and the wisdom and knowledge, formerly enjoyed, were forgotten. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. To come down from heaven, from his father's presence, where he had formerly possessed judgment and understanding sufficient to frame worlds, and to enter into a mortal tabernacle, was truly humiliating. It was, indeed, humiliating in the highest degree, to be deprived of so great a knowledge. 
yet he humbled himself, and condescended to descend below all things, and take commencing you at the very elements of knowledge, hence, one of the evangelists says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Now if Jesus had retained his wisdom when he was born into this world, it would not have been said of him that he increased in wisdom. If the knowledge which Jesus possessed in his previous state, were taken from him, when he entered an infant tabernacle, he could never regain that knowledge only by revelation. So it is with man. When he enters a body of flesh, his spirit is so compressed and contracted in infancy that he forgets his former existence, and has to commence, as Jesus did, at the lowest principles of knowledge, and ascend by degrees from one principle of intelligence to another. Thus he regains his former knowledge, and by showing himself approved through every degree of intelligence, he is counted worthy to receive more and more, until he is perfected and glorified in truth, and made like his elder brother, possessing all things. If the spiritual body of Jesus, and the spiritual bodies of all men, existed before the foundation of the world, as we have clearly shown, is there anything unreasonable in the idea of the pre-existence of the spiritual bodies of all the animal creation? There is not. One class of spirits may exist before they enter their natural bodies, as well as another. Did not the same God who made the spirits of men, make the spirits of beasts also? Job says, Ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these, that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? In whose hand is the soul of every living thing? In this quotation, we perceive that the soul of every living thing is in the hand of the Lord. He is the maker and preserver of the souls of beasts, birds, and fishes, as well as of the souls of men. Hence, Moses, when praying to the Lord, says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. Thus we see that the Lord is, not only the God of the spirits of men, but he is, the God of the spirits of all flesh. That the spirits of all the vegetables and animals were made before their bodies is evident from the history of creation as related in the first and second chapters of Genesis. In the first chapter, we have the history of the creation of vegetables, fish, fowls, beasts, and man. In the second chapter, we are told that on the seventh day there was not a man to till the ground, and then a description is given of the formation of his natural body out of the ground. In the first chapter, and during the third day, the vegetables and trees are formed. In the second chapter, and on the seventh day, we are told that the Lord made every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. And then we are informed that on the seventh day the Lord planted a garden, that is, set out the trees and herbs which he had made on the third day, and caused them to grow out of the ground. In the first chapter, it is said, that the fish, fowls, and beasts, were created on the fifth and sixth days. In the second chapter, these various animals are formed out of the ground on the seventh day, and brought unto Adam to see what he would call them. From this we learn, that the natural bodies of animals were made after the natural body of man, in the work of the temporal creation man seems to have been the first flesh upon the earth, his natural body being made even before the herbs and trees were planted and grew out of the ground. He was placed in the garden of Eden, before the Lord made the beasts and fowls, 
that is, their natural bodies, and brought them to him in order that he might name them. The first chapter gives a history of the creation of all things spiritual. The second chapter gives the history of the creation of all things temporal. In the order of time, and in the succession of events, the spiritual creation of the heavens, and earth, and all things contained therein, and dash differs from the temporal creation of the same. To suppose that these two chapters only give the history of the natural creation, would involve us in numerous difficulties, when we endeavor to reconcile the description given in the second chapter with that given in the first. But to receive them as the descriptions of two successive creations, the first being spiritual, as it truly was, and the second being temporal, all difficulties and discrepancies in the two different descriptions vanish away, and a flood of light bursts upon the mind. There were some things, however, which these spirits could not learn while they remained in their first estate, they could not learn the feelings and sensations of spirits embodied in tabernacles of flesh and bones. An idea of these feelings and sensations could not be imparted to them by teaching, nor by any other means whatsoever. No power of language or science could give them the most distant idea of them. An idea of those feelings and sensations can only be obtained by actual experience. They might be described to them for millions of ages, and yet without being placed in a condition to experience them for themselves, they never could form any ideas concerning them. This may be illustrated by supposing an infant to be born in a dungeon where not the least ray of light was ever permitted to enter. This infant might grow up to manhood with the organs of vision perfect, but he would have no idea whatever of the sensation of seeing and dash he could form no conception of light or of the beauty of the various colors of light. Though this sensation might be described to him for 100 years, yet no power of language could convey to him the faintest idea of red or green, or blue, or yellow, or of anything else connected with the sensations produced by light. These feelings could only be learned by actual experience. Then, and not till then, would he know anything about it. So, likewise, there are many feelings and sensations arising from the intimate connection of spirits with flesh and bones that can only be learned by experience. There are two different kinds of knowledge, one kind is obtained from reason and reflection, of which self-evident truths are the foundation, the other kind is gained by sensation or experience. The ideas relating to the first kind are obtained by comparing truth with truth, Hence they are acquired by spirits in this manner, and can be communicated to them independent of experience. The ideas of the latter kind cannot be obtained by reasoning or reflection. They can only be learned by experience. Experience, therefore, can advance to the highest degree of knowledge in some things, while in others they must remain in ignorance until they are placed in circumstances to learn them by experience. Now there are many experimental truths which are just as necessary to be learned as truths of a different nature, and without the knowledge of which an intelligent being could never be perfected in happiness and glory. Hence it becomes necessary that these spirits should enter bodies of flesh and bones, that they by experience may learn things which could not be learned in the spiritual state. None of these spirits are permitted to have tabernacles of flesh if they have violated the laws of their first estate and altogether turned therefrom. For if they will not abide in the laws of the spiritual state, and hold sacred the knowledge therein gained, their father will not entrust them with the knowledge to be gained in the second estate. If they keep not the first estate, they will not be permitted to enter upon the second. 
and this is their torment, because they hold back and are prohibited from advancing in knowledge and glory with the rest of the family who have been faithful. That there has been a rebellion among these spirits, is evident from the scriptures. The Apostle John says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The name of the being who headed this rebellion was called, dragon, serpent, devil, or Satan. The place where the war commenced, was heaven. The persons engaged with the devil were his angels, called the stars of heaven. The number of Satan's army was the third part of the stars of heaven, or of the angels. The other two-thirds were headed by Michael. The devil's army were banished from heaven to the earth. Some, perhaps, may imagine that these angels were beings who had been redeemed from some former world, and afterwards rebelled. But if that were the case, they would not be evil spirits, but would be evil beings, having flesh and bones, and consequently would be unable to enter into the tabernacles of human beings. But as many of them frequently have entered into one person, it shows most clearly that they are spirits. Others, perhaps, may imagine that these fallen angels are the spirits of evil men who have died on some former world, and whose bodies have never been raised. But this conjecture would not harmonize with the plan, pursued in regard to the wicked of this creation who are all to be raised from the dead and their spirits and bodies to be reunited. Neither would it harmonize with the testimony of the Apostle Jude who says, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, hereth reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. This passage proves that fallen angels are those who are on trial in their first estate. Angels do not receive fleshly bodies until they enter their second estate, consequently those in the first estate must be spirits. That these angels were spirits, pertaining to this creation, and not to a former one is shown from the fact, that they are reserved in chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. If they had lived in a first estate, preceding the one where our spirits were on trial, then they would have been judged on the previous world, but their judgment day has not yet come, but will come at the end of the earth, or at the time when the wicked of this world are judged. If, then, they are to receive a judgment in connection with the inhabitants of this earth, they must have formed a portion of the same family in the first estate, and did not have an origin anterior to that family, designed for this earth. Having learned that there has been war in heaven, let us next inquire, at what period this war ended? It is very plain that the war must have been raging in heaven after the earth was formed. For when the devil and his angels were cast out of heaven, they were banished to our earth. Consequently the earth was formed in any existence at the close of the war in heaven. The devil was on the earth at the time Adam and Eve were in the garden. It was he that lied to Eve and deceived her. Hence, he is called a lie from the beginning, or the father of lies. Now whether he and his angels had, at that early period, been cast out of heaven upon the earth, is not, in the English version of the Bible, clearly revealed. 
if they had not at the period of the fall of Adam, already received their banishment from heaven, the devil must, at least, have come, by permission, to this earth, and entered into the garden. And if his expulsion had not, at that time, taken place, he would, after having accomplished his evil designs in bringing about the fall of man, have returned again to his armies in heaven to encourage them in their unholy and malicious warfare. But from the testimony, in the revelations which God gave through Joseph Smith, the prophet, we are informed that Adam was Michael. It is reasonable, therefore, to suppose that Michael, who headed the armies in heaven against the devil's forces would continue the command until the close of the war, or until the devil's army were banished to the earth. To have left his post, and resigned his command before the enemy was overcome, would have been only a partial victory, and the trial in the first estate would have been incomplete. Nothing short of a full discomfiture of the enemy's forces, and their banishment from heaven, would have rendered the victory complete. Nothing short of this, would have entitled them to the praise of having kept their first estate. It is plain, therefore, that the war in heaven had ended, before Michael left heaven, and entered a body of flesh and bones under the name of Adam. When did this war in heaven commence? All the light we have upon this question is contained in modern revelations, and in those ancient revelations which have been revealed anew through Joseph the Seer. We quote the following from the book of Abraham, Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them, thou wast chosen before thou wast born. And there stood one among them that was like unto God, and he said unto those who were with him, We will go down, for there is space there, and we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell, and we will prove them herewith, to see if they will do all things, whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them, and they who keep their first estate, shall be added upon, and they who keep not their first estate, shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate, and they who keep their second estate, shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. And the Lord said, Who shall I send? And one answered like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry, and kept not his first estate, and, at that day, many followed after him. And then the Lord said, Let us go down, and they went down at the beginning, and they organized and formed, that is, the gods, the heavens and the earth. And the earth, after it was formed, was empty and desolate, because they had not formed anything but the earth. And darkness reigned upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of the gods was brooding upon the faces of the water. In this divine history, we are informed that the rebellion commenced at the time that the heavenly host were counseling, together, concerning the formation of this earth and the peopling of the same. The rebellion, therefore, must have been raging from the time of the holding of this grand council, until the foundations of the earth were laid, and probably too for some time after. But it must have been some time during the period between the beginning of this creation and the completion of the same, preparatory to the reception of Michael or Adam, that Satan and his army were overcome and banished to the earth. How long the period was, 
intervening between the time of holding the council and the beginning of this creation, is not revealed. It may have been only a very short period, or it may have been millions of years. And again, how long it was from the commencement of the creation, until Satan was cast out, is not revealed. Because we do not know the length of time included in each day's work, pertaining to the creation. Neither do we know on which of these days or periods he was cast out. It seems that Satan had proposed a plan to redeem all mankind, that one soul should not be lost. And believing that his plan was superior to any other suggested in the council, he was determined to carry it into effect at all hazards. Hence, he said to the Lord, Surely I will do it. Wherefore give me thine honor. If Satan had been permitted to carry out his plan, it would either have destroyed the agency of man, so that he could not commit sin, or it would have redeemed him in his sins and wickedness, without any repentance or reformation of life. If the agency of man were destroyed, he would only act as he is acted upon, and consequently he would merely be a machine, and his actions would have neither merit or demerit, so far as he was concerned, and could neither be punished nor rewarded, and would produce neither misery nor joy. Destroy the agency of man, and you destroy the mainspring of his happiness. Again, take away the agency of man, and you deprive him of his intelligence. For intelligence is the original force or cause of actions, it is a self-moving force, and all actions, resulting from such a force, must necessarily be free. If, therefore, the agency of man or his freedom of action be destroyed, you destroy his self-moving force. And if you deprive him of such force, you deprive him of intelligence. Therefore, agency is essential to the very existence of intelligence. This truth is clearly revealed in the revelation given to Joseph the seer, which reads as follows. All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it, to act for itself, as all intelligence also, otherwise there is no existence. Behold, here is the agency of man. The plan proposed by the devil, while he was yet in his first estate or in heaven, was to destroy the agency of man, thereby depriving him of the intelligence which God had given to him, and by this process man would be unable to do, of his own accord, either good or evil. And Satan thought that he could thus redeem all mankind, that not one soul should be lost. He did not perceive that man, redeemed after his plan, would be a perfect idiot, without the least glimmering of intelligence. Some, perhaps, may think we have misrepresented the intentions of the devil, for they can scarcely believe him to be so profoundly ignorant as to propose a plan which would, in its very nature, destroy the intelligence or knowledge of the human race. Such, perhaps may argue that it is more reasonable to suppose that the devil intended to leave them to their agency, so far as doing good or evil is concerned, and that thus their intelligence would be retained, but that he designed to redeem them from the effects of their sins without any exercise of their agency in the act of repentance or reformation. Such a plan, we admit, would thwart the ends of justice, and would admit unholy and sinful beings into the kingdom of God. Such beings would be redeemed in all their sins, and would still be determined to pursue a sinful course. And such characters would turn a heaven into a hell, and make themselves miserable, and also all others with whom they were associated. But such a plan, though it destroys justice, does not destroy the agency of man. It is true, that it redeems him without the exercise of his agency, but does not deprive him of it. 
but the revelation says that Satan desired to bring about the redemption of all mankind by the destruction of his agency. It reads thus, Satan rebelled against me, and sought to destroy the agency of man which I, the Lord God, had given him, and also, that I should give unto him mine own power. However wise Satan may have been, in some respects his plan certainly was a very foolish one. Satan's sin does not appear to have consisted wholly in the foolishness of the plan which he proposed before the Grand Council of Heaven, but in his stubbornness or unwillingness to yield to the superior light of the Council. Having devised the plan, he was determined to carry it into effect. Therefore he sought to overthrow the Kingdom and to usurp the power thereof in his own hands. Hence, he demanded of the Lord, saying, Give me thine honor, or as the Lord expresses himself in the above quotation, Satan rebelled against me, and sought that I should give unto him mine own power. However foolish Satan's plan may appear to us, it must have appeared plausible to many of his brethren. They looked upon a theory which they supposed would redeem them all to be superior to all others. They either had not sufficient intelligence to judge of the consequences of a scheme, destroying the agency of man, or else they preferred to run the risk of the results, rather than come under a plan, founded upon the principles of justice and mercy, which would punish and reward them according to their works. It may be, that they were capable of discerning and judging righteously, every scheme that was proposed, but were careless and indifferent upon these subjects, deciding with Satan, before they had made sufficient investigation, and having taken sides, they were determined to maintain their position. It is not likely that the final decision of the contending armies took place immediately. Many, no doubt, were unsettled in their views, unstable in their minds, and undecided as to which force to join. There may have been a long period before the division line was so strictly drawn as to become unalterable. Laws, without doubt, were enacted, and penalties affixed, according to the nature of the offenses or crimes. Those who altogether turned from the Lord, and were determined to maintain the cause of Satan, and who proceeded to the utmost extremities of wickedness, placed themselves without the reach of redemption. Therefore, such were prohibited from entering into a second probationary state, and had no privilege of receiving bodies of flesh and bones. A second estate, to them would have been of no advantage, because they had sinned to that extent that the Spirit of the Lord had entirely left them, and light and truth no longer dwelt in them. Therefore, they could not feel a disposition to repent, and if they had been permitted to enter another state of trial, they would have continued their unholy warfare. And, also, if they had been permitted to receive fleshly bodies, they would have propagated their species, and instilled into the minds of their children the same devilish principles which reigned in their own bosoms. Therefore, the Lord thrust them out of heaven and preserved them in chains of everlasting darkness until the judgment of the great day which will come at the end of the earth. The number cast out were about one third part, as revealed, not only to John on the Isle of Patmos, but to Joseph the seer, as follows, in dash, and it came to pass, that Adam being tempted of the devil, for, behold, the devil was before Adam, for he rebelled against me, saying, Give me thine honor which is my power, and also a third part of the hosts of heaven turned he away from me, because of their agency. And they were thrust down, and thus came the devil and his angels. And, behold, there is a place prepared for them from the beginning, which place is hell. Among the two-thirds who remained, it is highly probable, that there were many who were not valiant in the war, 
but whose sins were of such a nature that they could be forgiven through faith in the future sufferings of the only begotten of the Father, and through their sincere repentance and reformation. We see no impropriety in Jesus offering himself as an acceptable offering and sacrifice before the Father to atone for the sins of his brethren, committed, not only in the second, but also in the first estate. Certain it was that the work which Jesus was to accomplish was known in the Grand Council where the rebellion broke out. It was known that man would sin in his second estate. For it was upon the subject of his redemption that the assembly became divided, and which resulted in war. John, the Revelator, speaking of a certain power, says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now we may ask, why was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world? If there were no persons who had sinned in their first estate, that could be benefited by the sufferings of the elder brother, then we can see no reason for considering him at that early period, as already slain, the very fact that the atonement which was to be made in a future world, was considered as already having been made, seems to show that there were those who had sinned, and who stood in need of the atonement. The nature of the sufferings of Christ was such that it could redeem the spirits of men as well as their bodies. The word of the Lord, through Joseph, the prophet, to Martin Harris, reads thus, N dash, I command you to repent, and dash, repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth, and by my wrath, and by my anger, and your sufferings be sore, and dash, how sore you know not. How exquisite you know not. Yea, how hard to bear you know not. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit. And would that I might not drink the bitter cup, and shrink and dash nevertheless. Glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Jesus suffered, not only in body, but also in spirit. By the sufferings of his body he atoned for the sins of men committed in and by the body, by the sufferings of his spirit, he atoned for the sins committed by the spirit. Hence, the atonement redeems both body and spirit. It is reasonable, therefore, to suppose that if spirits in the first estate sinned, they might be forgiven through their faith and repentance, by virtue of the future sufferings of Christ. 22. That the spirits of men did receive promises and gifts before the world began, is clearly manifest in many parts of scripture. The Apostle Paul writes as follows, in dash in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. God promised eternal life. When was this promise made? It was made before the world began. To whom was it made? It was made to the spirits of men who existed before the world began. We were comforted with the promises of God when we dwelled in his presence. We could then look upon the face of the firstborn and consider him as already slain, or as Peter says, that he verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. When we were in our spiritual state, all the grace or mercy we received was because of Christ. Paul, in speaking of God, says, who hath saved us, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. According
according to this passage, and the preceding ones, Paul, Timothy, Titus, and others existed before the world began, and in that interior existence, God made promises unto them of eternal life, and also gave them grace, in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul also says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now if the apostles and others were called, with an holy calling, and chosen Christ before the foundation of the world, and actually received grace in Christ, and had the promise of eternal life made to them before the world began, then should it be thought incredible, that in and through Christ they also received forgiveness of the sins which they have committed in that pre-existent state? If all the two-thirds who kept their first estate were equally valiant in the war, and equally faithful, why should some of them be called and chosen in their spiritual state to hold responsible stations and offices in this world, while others were not? If there were none of those spirits who sinned, why were the apostles, when they existed in their previous state, chosen to be blessed, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? All these passages seem to convey an idea, that there were callings, choosings, ordinances, promises, predestinations, elections, and appointments, made before the world began. The same idea is also conveyed in the quotation which we have already made from the book of Abraham. Now the Lord, had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them, and he said, these I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them, thou wast chosen before thou wast born. Now is there not reason to believe that the nobility or greatness which many of these spirits possessed, was obtained by faithfulness to the cause of God? Was it not because of their righteousness that they were appointed to be the Lord's rulers? How did Abraham become one of the noble and great spirits? How came the Lord to choose Abraham before he was born? If we had an answer to these questions, we should very probably find that Abraham stood up valiantly for the Son of God at the time the rebellion broke out, and that because of his integrity and righteousness, the Lord chose him before he was born to hold authority and power in his second estate, to become the father of the faithful, and to be a blessing to all nations. All the spirits when they come here are innocent. That is, if they have ever committed sins, they have repented and obtained forgiveness through faith in the future sacrifice of the Lamb. So far as innocency is concerned, they enter this world alike. But so far as circumstances are concerned they are not alike. One class of spirits are permitted to come into the world in an age when the priesthood and kingdom of God are on the earth, and they hear and receive the gospel. Others enter the world in an age of darkness, and are educated in foolish and erroneous doctrines. Some are born among the people of God, and are brought up in the right way. Others are born among the heathen, and taught to worship idols. Some spirits take bodies in the lineage of the chosen seed, through whom the priesthood is transferred. Others receive bodies among the African Negroes, or in the lineage of Canaan, whose descendants were cursed, pertaining to the priesthood. Now if all the spirits were equally faithful in their first estate in keeping the laws thereof, why are they placed in such dissimilar circumstances in their second estate? 
Why are some placed in circumstances where they are taught of God, become rulers, kings, and priests, and finally are exalted to all the fullness of celestial glory, while others are taught in all kinds of wickedness, and never hear the gospel, till they hear it in prison after death, and in the resurrection receive not a celestial glory, but a terrestrial. If rewards and punishments are the results of good and evil actions, then it would seem that the good and evil circumstances under which the spirits enter this world, must depend upon the good and evil actions which they had done in the previous world. Our condition when we enter the next world will depend upon our conduct here. By analogy, then, does not our condition when we enter this world, depend upon our conduct before we were born? Does not the question which the apostles put to the Saviour, respecting the man who was born blind, show that they considered it possible for a man to sin before he was born? They considered it reasonable that a person should be born blind as the penalty for the sins which he had committed before he was born. Though the spirits are all innocent when they come here, may it not be possible that they are forgiven and made innocent on condition that they shall enter this world under circumstances, either favorable or unfavorable, according to the nature of their sins? Do not the inhabitants of our world, who are raised from the dead, differ in glory as one star differs from another? Is it not necessary that they should be forgiven of all their sins, and made innocent before they can receive the Holy Ghost, or any degree of glory? And do not the differences of their condition in their resurrection depend upon the nature of their actions in this life? If then they must be forgiven and become innocent before they can even enter a kingdom of glory, and if, when they do enter there, it is under a great variety of circumstances, depending on their actions here, then we may from analogy reason that the spirits must be forgiven and become innocent before they can even come here, and that when they do come, it will be under a great variety of conditions, depending on their actions in a previous state. The division line being permanently drawn between Michael's and the devil's forces, the latter were overpowered and cast down, and the whole heavens wept over their fall. A description of this is given in a vision shown to Joseph the seer in Sydney region. We give the following extract, and this we saw also in their record, that an angel of God who was in authority in the presence of God, who rebelled against the only begotten Son, whom the Father loved, and who was in the bosom of the Father, was thrust down from the presence of God and the Son, and was called perdition, for the heavens wept over him and dash he was Lucifer, the son of the morning. And we beheld, and lo, he is fallen. Is fallen. Even the son of the morning. Peace being restored in heaven, and all who remained, having kept their first estate and overcome Satan, the next great work to be accomplished was to place these spirits upon the new earth in tabernacles of flesh and bones, where they all could pass through another series of trials, and meet their common enemy upon new grounds. And if they should succeed in this second warfare and overcome and vanquish the hosts of hell, they were to be counted worthy to inherit all things, and to become equal with their father in glory, and in power, and in might, and in dominion. The heaven, earth, animals, vegetables, and all things, pertaining to this creation, being finished, the Lord pronounced the whole very good. Sorrow, misery, sickness, pain, and death were unknown. Immortality was unstamped upon man and the whole animal kingdom. If any living creature had been subject to death, or any manner of pain, it would not have been perfect in its organization. It could not have been pronounced good. Neither would it have been consistent, as the work of an all-wise and supremely good being. 
perfection characterizes all the works of God. Therefore, all the tabernacles which he made from the dust must have been capable of eternal endurance. There must have been something connected with these fleshly tabernacles which was capable of preserving them in immortality. If spirits, in their first estate, did not know good from evil, why were they thrust down and bound with everlasting chains of darkness for doing that which they did not know to be evil? Would any parent, hearing this world, banish his children everlastingly from his presence, without any hopes of recovery, for doing those things which they did not know to be evil? Our hearts would revolt at the very idea of such injustice in an earthly parent. Shall we then represent God as more unjust than man? Shall we say that he will punish with everlasting punishment the rebellious angels without a sufficient cause? Shall he doom them to endless misery for acts which they did not know to be evil? Our hearts would revolt at the very idea of such injustice in an earthly parent. Shall we then represent God as more unjust than man? Shall we say that he will punish with everlasting punishment the rebellious angels without a sufficient cause? Shall he doom them to endless misery for acts which they did not know to be evil? It is evident, then, that the angels in their first estate knew good and evil, and therefore, were subjects of reward and punishment for their acts. Why was man deprived of all his former knowledge when he left the spirit world and came here? It was in order that he might have a second trial or probation under new circumstances and conditions to which he had not previously been subject. Man being without the knowledge of good and evil would be in a state of innocence. And being immortal, not subject to pain or death, he would be entirely ignorant concerning the nature of pain or misery. It could not be described to him, so as to convey to his mind the least idea of its nature. Nothing short of suffering pain could impart to him a knowledge respecting it. A knowledge of pain never could have been derived from the reasoning faculties, neither could they have derived it from observation. If man before the fall had no knowledge of misery, it is evident that he also must have been ignorant of the nature of happiness. For although placed in circumstances where there is no misery, yet he does not realize that this condition is a condition of happiness. No one could explain to him the nature of happiness. The idea of happiness never could enter his mind until he could form an idea of a state or condition of an opposite nature. It was necessary, therefore, for them to experience pain or misery, that they might discern and appreciate happiness. Christ was considered as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, to atone for the original sin of Adam. Therefore, by his transgression, he obtained knowledge indispensably necessary to his exaltation and happiness and by the atonement his sin was forgiven, and he restored to the favor of God, possessing the requisite qualifications to enjoy his redemption, and the society of beings who knew good and evil. The Lord God said, Behold a man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. Genesis God and the heavenly host had attained to the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore they were capable of enjoying happiness and judging righteously according to the principles of right and wrong, justice and mercy. The son did not consider death to be too great a sacrifice, in order that man might be raised from the very depths of ignorance and be placed on an equal footing with the gods, as far as it regards good and evil and all their accompanying consequences. When, therefore, the infant spirit is first born in the heavenly world, that is not the commencement of its capacities. Each particle eternally existed prior to this organization. 
how many different laws these particles have acted under during the endless school of experience through which they have passed is not known to us. What degree of knowledge they have obtained by experience, previous to their organization in the womb of the celestial female, is not revealed. One thing is certain, the particles that enter into the organization of the infant spirit, are placed in a new sphere of action, the laws to govern them in this new and superior condition must be different from any laws under which they had previously acted. It seems far more consistent to believe that infinite knowledge has from all eternity existed somewhere, either in organized personages or in disorganized materials. The light and intelligence and truth which each saint will then possess in fullness, was not created, neither, indeed, can be, but they were from all eternity. How very different in their nature is light and truth from substance. A substance can only be in one place at a time, while intelligence or truth can be in all worlds at the same instant. A substance cannot be divided, and a part be taken to some other place, without diminishing the original quantity from which it was taken, while different portions of light and truth may be imparted to other beings in other places without diminishing in the least the fountain from which they are derived. We have dwelt upon this subject rather longer than what we, at first, intended, because we consider it a principle which should be well understood by the saints, not only for our own benefit, but that we may be able to teach others correctly. It is for this purpose that we have dwelt so long upon the pre-existence of man in order that we may the more clearly understand, not only our heavenly and godlike origin, but the grand system of laws by which God originates and prepares tabernacles for his own residence in which the fullness of his wisdom, power, and glory, are manifested. Oh how great, and how marvelous are the ways of God, and his plans which he has adopted for the salvation and glorification of his intelligent offspring. Who can understand these things without rejoicing by day and by night? And who can understand the works of our God and the mysteries of his kingdom? unless he is enlightened by the light of the Holy Spirit. Well did the Apostle Paul say, the natural man knoweth not the things of God, because they are spiritually discerned. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, even the deep things of God. Well did our Saviour say, that the Spirit of truth should guide his disciples into all truth and as should take of the things of the Father and should show them unto his people and as should show them things to come, and thus make them revelations and prophets. Oh that mankind would consider upon these things. Oh that they would come unto God like men in days of old, and learn of him now, as they did then. Oh that they would reflect upon their heavenly origin, and what may be their future destiny, if they would only claim, through obedience and faith, the high privileges set before them. Oh that they knew what belongs to their peace and welfare both here and hereafter. But they know not and dash they are like the beast that perisheth, for whom slaughter is prepared, and he knoweth it not, even so, it is with this generation. They know nothing only what they know naturally. They have denied the necessity of present revelation. Therefore, all spiritual light and heavenly knowledge are withheld from them, and they will bring swift destruction upon themselves and perish in their sins, and this causes my heart to be sorrowful. And I mourn over the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds by day and by night. And I labor and toil, and also my brethren, to recover them, but their hearts are fully set within them to do evil, and they must soon be ripened for the destructions decreed upon the nations in the latter days. 
we have in this article on pre-existence traced man back to his origin in the heavenly world as an infant spirit. We have shown that this spirit was begotten and born by celestial parents long anterior to the formation of this creation. We have shown that the great family of spirits had a probation and trial before they came here and dash that a third part of them fell and were cast out of heaven and were deprived of fleshly bodies. While the remainder have come forth in their successive generations to people this globe. We have shown that, by keeping this their second estate, they will be perfected, glorified, and made gods like unto their father God by whom their spirits were begotten. The dealing of God towards his children from the time that they are first born in heaven, through all their successive stages of existence, until they are redeemed, perfected, and made gods, is a pattern after which all other worlds are dealt with. All gods act upon the same great general principles, and thus, the course of each god is one eternal round. There will, of course, be a variety in all his works, but there will be no great deviations from the general laws which he has ordained. The creation, fall, and redemption of all future worlds with their inhabitants will be conducted upon the same general plan, so that when one is learned, the great fundamental principles of the science of world-making, world-governing, and world-redemption, will be understood. The father of our spirits has only been doing that which his progenitors did before him. Each succeeding generation of gods follow the example of the preceding ones. Each generation have their wives, who raise up from the fruit of their loins immortal spirits. When their families become numerous, they organize new worlds for them, after the former patterns set before them. They place their families upon the same, who fall as the inhabitants of previous worlds have fallen. They are redeemed after the pattern by which more ancient worlds have been redeemed. Thus will worlds and systems of worlds, and gorgeous universes, be multiplied in endless succession through the infinite depths of boundless space. Some celestial, some terrestrial, and some celestial, differing in their glory, as the apparent splendor of the shining luminaries of heaven differ. All these will swarm with an infinite number of living, moving, animated beings from the minutest animalcules that sport by millions in a single drop of water, up through every grade of existence to those almighty, all-wise, and most glorious personages who exist in countless numbers, governing and controlling all things. Chapter 3 Christian Ignorance of the Pre-Existence Okay, so now we'll get into the reading and commentary portion of the program. Once again, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. Okay, so my wife is going to be reading tonight, uh, Chapter 2, a review on the scriptures and the talks of pre-existence. Can you not hear me? I hear you, I hear you. Uh, Can you hear me, Dad? Yeah, how about... I don't even know. I don't even know. Okay. Like, Emmett's not monitoring the studio like he's supposed to. 
like he's sitting there playing video games and Hello? we're trying to like figure me? out yeah yeah i'm okay i don't know he didn't i know do anything he is he monitoring the studio but you cannot hear him you cannot hear him he is monitoring the studio I don't know why you can't hear him, and I wasn't unmuted until just right now. Oh, I could hear him a second ago, but whatever. It well, I couldn't. Okay. I can't hear him on the radio. Okay, show. fine. So. Fine. Okay. Tim's going to be reading tonight. I uh, didn't have time to read. We had a bunch of paperwork to sign at the bank today for the house. And Emma stayed home today because he was sick. But all of the stuff we asked him to do, he didn't do. Well, he didn't do almost it. I mean, he did the one thing. Um, and that's only because I, I, like, woke up every couple hours and yelled at him to do the thing I was asking him to do, which was just, you know, put my my clothes in the wash so that I could, uh, you know, okay, have anyways, more clothes. Okay, um, so. We're trying to find, we're trying to help you right now. I know it's hard to believe, but we are. And I cannot find, we don't know where that book is pre-existent. So I'm not sure if you're talking about an Ensign to the Nation books or what. All I can see is what you have posted online. And start over tomorrow because I asked you about this yesterday. Yeah, you can go. Yeah, to yesterday online, I also read it online. No, I know that's where I'm reading it right now, but I'm trying to find out. Is it a, its own separate book? No, it's an Ogden Kraut book. Okay. I, I posted like, the text on my Facebook, and you can go to OgdenKraut.com. I'm on that right now. I have that pulled up, so I can read it. Off air. I was trying to. But, okay, wait, I'm trying to. Yes, but you're wasting time. Okay. I'm trying to find it and help you. I'm asking all of the questions. What's it called? It's right here. Three thousand twenty-seven. Yep. So I have it in both now. So I have it on the book, and then I also have it on the um on the thing where you posted it. Okay. Are you still there? Oh, well, okay. I yeah, couldn't hear you. So I didn't know if you were there. What? Page what in the enzymes of the nations? Yeah, that's what I was trying to find out. So we did find it. It's in pre-existence. Is in the enzymes of the nations, volume five. Um, on the page there, it's three thousand twenty-seven to begin that chapter. But we're on chapter two, which is a scriptural review that starts out on page three thousand two hundred or three thousand twenty-eight, and. Um, for the pamphlet that it was printed in originally, it's on page five. So, and if you want to just find it easier, you can just go on to Facebook, um, onto Mark's Facebook, so that you can see it where he already printed it off, or you know, That's Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash lapurus1977. It's also in my group, LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussion. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I just see it right onto your Facebook page. Yeah, it's also on Zion's Redemption Radio Network and a couple of other places that I post things. Um, Yeah, okay. 
So do you want me to go ahead and start reading? Yeah, I'll mute myself. Okay, sounds good. All right, so chapter two, scriptural review. The best scriptural review even ever written. Oh, excuse me, I didn't notice this. Hold on, you might hear me better. I don't know, you can let me know. I am going to put in the other earbud. Can you hear me better this way? Well, Emmett probably could let me know. Um, okay, he says I sound fine, so I'll just I keep on going this way. And also, just for the listening audience, my mm-hmm. bracket for my cell phone antenna broke when I was trying to put it on, and so I don't have a yeah. It is what it is. Uh, I like how you said. So you said the thing for your cell phone antenna broke while you were putting it on, and then you continued to break up for the entire entirety of that. I know. That's, that's what I was just is. thinking. I was going to say that. I was like, yep, so that's how it is. That's because I don't have a cell phone antenna because the bracket right. broke when I was trying to put it on the truck today. Yeah, that's what so. he was saying. Was It was ironic because when you said it, you broke up while you were trying to say it. But the reason you're breaking up is because it already broke. So, yeah, but we understand what you're saying. Okay. It just you don't have as good cell phone reception as you normally would. So. We'll have to fix the bracket. Okay. So, all right, I will go ahead and read. I just wanted to make sure you could hear me better. Um, I changed uh, my headset so that it was uh, situated differently. I remember yesterday um, you were talking about how one of the mics was rubbing or something weird, and so I was like, oh, yeah, I have to fix that. So, So it took me a second, but I am ready. Okay, um, and I'm going to read, um, instead of uh, asking for commentary every single page, because this is a longer chapter, you were saying, um, I am going to, instead of go page by page, I'm going to do every two okay. or three pages. Unless if you do have That's something, fine. then go ahead and interrupt me, but I'm, I'm pretty quick and I'll forget. Anything. It's too long, and I really okay. don't want to do this today, uh, as oh. you can tell by my attitude right yep. now. So yeah. thank you for doing this. You're welcome. Um, if you don't want to do it, then we can always reschedule. I, I don't mind. <laughs> okay. Well, Sounds good. I just need this to be a podcast because radio shows don't seem to work and nobody cares anyway. So, you know, I don't know why I'm wasting my time when nobody cares. So, that is. Okay. Okay. The best scriptural review ever written on the subject of preexistence was first published by the Apostle Orson Pratt in 1853 in The Seer. His rather lengthy but thorough presentation is so reasonable and clear that it should leave no doubts on the biblical support of that doctrine. This chapter contains extensive excerpts from Elder Pratt's treaty or treatise. <laughs> The Preexistence of Man excerpts by Apostle Orson Pratt, as published in The Seer. Life and intelligence are not the result of organization, but they are the cause, and therefore they must exist before the effects can follow. Our bodies are formed from the dust of the dust, but our spirits made from the same material? They were, they, then they would, at death, return to dust. But as they are not reduced to dust, 
like the body, they must be formed of materials far superior to those of the earth. Where did those materials come from? They came from God. Solomon, when speaking upon the subject of death, says in um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. And quote from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. I am looking for one second. Um, I'm still here, Emmett. I'm just trying to grab this piece of paper that looks so that I can use it as a marker. Okay. Ready, set, go. Okay. According to this passage, the spirit has not an earthly origin, but a heavenly one. It came from God. It returns to God, God who gave it, also receives it back into his presence. Could the spirit return to God if it never were in his presence? Could we return to a place where we never were before? If then the spirits of men existed with God and came from him to animate mortal bodies, they must either be created in heaven at the time the infant tabernacles are being formed or else they existed before. Inasmuch as scripture informs us that the spirit of man existed with God and came from him and returns to him, it is reasonable to believe that its formation took place at a period of anterior to the organization of the body. This period of preexistence must have been sufficiently long enough to have educated and instructed the spirit in the laws and order of government pertaining to the spiritual world to have rendered itself approved or disproved by those laws to have been tried in all points according to its capacities and knowledge and free agency, which always accompanies and forms a part of the nature of intelligent beings. In fine, the period of preexistence must have been sufficiently long to have constituted a probationary state or the first estate, wherein the spirits are on trial and may fall and be reserved in chains of darkness unto the judgment of the great day. The pre-existence of man is a doctrine which was believed by the ancients. The disciples of Jesus, when observing a man who had been blind from his birth, put the following question to the master. Who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's John chapter 9, verse 2. It is evident from the nature of this question that the disciples considered it possible for a man to sin before he was born, and that in consequence of such sin, he might be born blind. This passage shows most clearly that the disciples not only believed in the preexistence of man, but believed that he was an intelligent agent governed by laws, which he was capable of obeying or disobeying, and that his sins in his former state might be the cause of his being born blind, and that his, con or his condition in this present state was affected by his acts in the former state. The Savior, in replying to this question, says, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. That's on in verse 3 of John 9. Now, if the presence of man were not a true doctrine, why did not our Savior take this opportunity to correct the ideas of his disciples by telling them that the blind man could not sin before he was born? Why did he merely tell them that his blindness was not the effects of the sin of himself or parents? Why did he still leave the impression upon their minds that the blind man had pre-existence? Jesus himself believed in pre-existence, for he said, I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. 
And again, he said, before Abraham was, I am. That's John chapter 8, verses 42, and also uh, verse 58. Jesus prays thus, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. John 17, 5. From these things, we perceive that the spirit body of Jesus existed before the world was. Having proved that the preexistence of man is reasonable and scriptural, we shall next prove that this preexistence can be traced back to a period before the foundation of the world. The Lord asked a question of Job in relation to this matter. He inquires, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's Job chapter 38, verses 4, verse 6, and verse 7. If Job had no prior existence, he could have easily answered the Lord's first question. He could have replied that, when the foundations of the earth were laid, I, Job, did not exist. The very question implies that Job was in existence at the time of the organization of the globe, but he had not sufficient understanding as to the place where he existed to correctly answer the question put to him. Neither could he remember who laid the cornerstone thereof. Neither could he recollect the song of the morning stars. Neither could he call to mind the shout of joy which was uttered by the vast assembly of all the sons of God. Jesus called himself the bright and morning star in Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. And in another place, he represents himself the beginning of the creation of God in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. That's Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. As Jesus is the firstborn, firstborn son of God, it is evident that all the other sons of God would be his younger brethren, begotten by the same father. Therefore, Paul represents him as the firstborn among many brethren. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And in another place, he says that both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them broken. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. That the brethren here spoken of are the sons of God, begotten by the same father that was, that was, that Jesus was is evident from another saying of the apostle. We have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. Our earthly fathers are called the fathers of our flesh, flesh, while God is called the Father of spirits. Earthly fathers have no power to beget spirits. They beget only the bodies of flesh or the tabernacles. While our Heavenly Father begets the spirits or the living beings which came come from him to inhabit the tabernacles. The firstborn of all this great family of spirits holds by virtue of his birthright a preeminence in all things. Hence it is written, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. The oldest spirits, or the first begotten, hold the keys of salvation towards all the rest of the family of spirits. The firstborn spirit is called the morning star because he was born in the morning of creation, or in other words, because he was the beginning of the creation of God. His younger brethren were called morning stars because 
they were also born in the morning of creation, being the next in succession in the order of spiritual creation. Objections have been raised against the preexistence of man upon the ground, that we do not remember such existence or any event connected therewith. It is true. We do not remember anything prior to our present state, but this does not prove that we had no prior existence. We do not remember our existence or anything else. During the first six months of our infancy, does this prove that we did not exist during that time? No. If then we could exist six months during our present state without remembering it, we might for the same reason have existed during 6,000 years prior to our present state and not remember it. Existence is in no way dependent on memory. Therefore, memory has nothing to do with the question of our past state. When Jesus was born into our world, his previous knowledge was taken from him. This was occasioned by his spiritual body being compressed into a smaller volume than it originally occupied. In his previous existence, sorry, in his previous existence, his spirit, as the scriptures testify, was the size and form of man. When the spirit was compressed so as to be wholly enclosed in an infant tabernacle, it had a tendency to suspect the memory and the wisdom and knowledge formerly enjoyed were forgotten. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. That's in Acts chapter 8, verse 33. To come down from heaven, from his father's presence, where he had formerly possessed judgment and understanding sufficient to frame worlds, and to enter into a mortal tabernacle was truly humiliating. It was indeed humiliating in the highest degree to be deprived of so great a knowledge, yet he humbled himself and condescended to descend below all things and to commence anew at the very elements of knowledge. Hence, one of the evangelists, evangelists says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Now, if Jesus had retained his wisdom when he was born into this world, it would not have been said of him that he increased in wisdom. If the knowledge which Jesus possessed in his previous state were taken from him when he entered an infantile or an infant tabernacle, he could never again regain that knowledge only by revelation. So it is with man. When he enters a body of flesh, his spirit is so compressed and contracted in infancy that he forgets his former existence and has to commence as Jesus did at the lowest principles of knowledge and ascend by degrees from one principle of intelligence to another. Thus he regains his former knowledge and by showing himself approved through every degree of intelligence, he is counted worthy to receive more and more until he is perfected and glorified in truth and made like his elder brother possessing all things. If the spiritual body of Jesus and the spiritual bodies of all men existed before the foundation of this world, as we have clearly shown, is there anything unreasonable in the idea of the preexistence of the spiritual bodies of all the animal creation? There is not. One class of spirits may exist before they enter their natural bodies as well as another. Did not the same God who made the spirits of men make the spirits of beasts also? Job says, Ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing. That's Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. In this quotation, we perceive that the soul of every living thing is in the hand of the Lord. 
He is the maker and preserver of the souls of beasts, birds, and fishes, as well as of the souls of men. Hence, Moses, when praying to the Lord, says, let the Lord thy God, or I'm sorry, let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. That's in Numbers chapter 27, verse 16. Thus we see that the Lord is not only the God of the spirits of men, but he is the God of the spirits of all flesh. That the spirits of all the vegetables and animals were made before their bodies is evident from the history of creation, as related in the first and second chapters of Genesis. In the first chapter, we have the history of the creation of vegetables, fish, fowls, beasts, and man. In the second chapter, we are told that on the seventh day, there was not a man to till the ground. And then a description is given of the formation of his natural body out of the ground. In the first chapter and during the third day, the vegetables and trees are formed in the second chapter. And on the seventh day, we are told that the Lord made every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. And then we are informed that on the seventh day, the Lord planted a garden that is set out the trees and herbs which he had made on the third day and caused them to grow out of the ground. In the first chapter, it is said that the fish, fowls, and beasts were created on the fifth and sixth days. In the second chapter, these various animals are formed out of the ground on the seventh day and brought unto Adam to see what he would call them. From this we learn that the natural bodies of animals were made after the natural body of man. In the work of the temporal creation, man seems to have been the first flesh upon this earth. His natural body being made even before the herbs and trees were planted and grew out of the ground. He was placed in the Garden of Eden before the Lord made the beasts and fowls, that is, their natural bodies, and brought them to him in order that he might name them. The first chapter gives the history of the creation of all things spiritual. The second chapter gives the history of the creation of all things temporal. In the order of time and in the succession of events, the spiritual creation of the heavens and earth and all things contained therein differs from the temporal creation of the same. To suppose that these two chapters only give the history of the natural creation would involve us in numerous difficulties. When we endeavor to reconcile the description given in the second chapter with that given in the first, but to receive them as the descriptions of two successive creations, the first being spiritual, as it truly was, and the second being temporal. All difficulties and discrepancies in the two different descriptions vanish away and a flood of light bursts upon the mind. There were some things, however, which these spirits could not learn. While they remained in their first estate, they could not learn the feelings and sensations of the spirits embodied in tabernacles of flesh and bones. An idea of these feelings and sensations could not be imparted to them by teaching, nor by any other means whatsoever. No power of language or science could give them the most distant idea of them. An idea of these, those feelings and sensations can only be obtained by actual experience. They might be described to them for millions of ages. And yet, without being placed in a condition to experience them for themselves, they never could form any ideas concerning them. This may be illustrated by supposing an infant to be born in a dungeon where not the least ray of light was ever permitted to enter. This infant might grow up to manhood with the organs of vision perfect. 
but he would have no idea whatever the sensation of seeing. He could form no conception of light or the, of the beauty of various colors of light. Though this sensation might be described to him for 100 years, yet no power of language could convey to him the faintest idea of red or green or blue or yellow or of anything else connected with the sensations produced by light. These feelings could only be learned by actual experience. Then, and not till then, would he know anything about it. So likewise, there are many feelings and sensations arising from the intimate connection of spirits with flesh and bones that can only be learned by experience. There are two different kinds of knowledge. One kind is obtained from reason and reflection, of which self-evident truths are the foundation. The other kind is gained by sensation or experience. The ideas relating to the first kind are obtained by comparing truth with truth. Hence, they are acquired by spirits in this manner and can be communicated to them independent of experience. The ideas of the latter kind cannot be obtained by reasoning or reflection. They can only be learned by experience. Spirits, therefore, can advance to the highest degree of knowledge in some things, while in others they must remain in ignorance until they are placed in circumstances to learn them by experience. Now, there are many experimental truths which are just as necessary to be learned as truths of a different nature, and without the knowledge of which an intelligent being could never be perfected in happiness and glory. Hence, it becomes necessary that these spirits should enter bodies of flesh and bones, that they, by experience, may learn things which could not be learned in the spiritual state. None of these spirits are permitted to have tabernacles of flesh. If they have violated the laws of their first estate and altogether turned therefrom, for if they will not abide in the laws of the spiritual state and hold sacred the knowledge therein gained, their father will not entrust them with the knowledge to be gained in the second estate. If they keep not the first estate, they will not be permitted to enter upon the second. And this their torment because they are held back and are prohibited from the advancing in knowledge and glory with the rest of the family who have been faithful. That there has been rebellion, a rebellion among these spirits is evident, I'm sorry, among these spirits, is evident from the scriptures. The Apostle John says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the world, the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. That's Revelation chapter 12 verses and 9. The name of the being who headed this rebellion was called dragon, serpent, devil, or Satan. The place where the war commenced was heaven. The persons engaged with the devil were his angels called the stars of heaven. The number of Satan's army was the third part of the stars of heaven. Or, of the angels, the other two-thirds were headed by Michael, the devil's army, were banished from heaven to the earth. Some perhaps may imagine that these angels were, be were beings who had been redeemed from some former world and afterwards rebelled. But, if this were the case, they would not be evil spirits, but would be evil beings. 
having flesh and bones, and consequently would be unable to enter into the tabernacles of human beings. But as many of them frequently have entered into the person, it shows most clearly that they are spirits. Others perhaps may imagine that these fallen angels are the spirits of evil men who, it says who hove died, but I'm pretty sure that means have died on some former world and whose bodies have never been raised. But this conjecture would not harmonize with the plan pursued in regard to the wicked of this creation who are all to be raised from the dead and their spirits and bodies to be reunited. Neither would it harmonize with the testimony of the Apostle Jude, who says, The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness into the judgment of the great day. That's Jude, verse 6. This passage proves that fallen angels are those who were on trial in their first estate. Angels do not receive fleshly bodies until they enter their second estate. Consequently, those in the first estate must be spirits. That these angels were spirits pertaining to this creation and not a former one is shown from the fact that they are reserved in chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. If they had lived in a first estate preceding the one where our spirits were on trial, then they would have been judged on a previous world. But their judgment day has not yet come but will come at the end of the earth or at the end of time when the wicked of this world are judged. I'm sorry, or at the time when the wicked of this world are judged. If then they are to receive a judgment in connection with the inhabitants of this earth, they must have formed a portion of the same family in the first estate and did not have an origin, um, an origin anterior to the family designed for this earth. Having learned that there has been a war in heaven, let us next inquire that what period this war ended. It is very plain that the war must have been raging in heaven after the earth was formed. For when the devil and his angels were cast out of heaven, they were banished to our earth. Consequently, the earth was formed and in existence at the close of the war in heaven. The devil was on the earth at the time Adam and Eve were in the garden. It was he that lied to Eve and deceived her, hence he is called a liar from the beginning or the father of lies. Now, whether he and his angels had at, the early, at that early period been cast out of heaven upon the earth is not in the English version of the Bible. Clearly revealed, if they had not at the period of the fall of Adam already received their banishment from heaven, the devil must at least have come by permission to this earth and entered into the garden and if his expulsion had not at that time taken place he would after having accomplished his evil designs and bringing about the fall of man have returned again to his armies in heaven to encourage them in their unholy and malicious warfare but from the testimony in the revelations which god gave through joseph smith the prophet we are informed that Adam was Michael. It is reasonable, therefore, to suppose that Michael, who headed the armies of heaven against the devil's forces, would continue the command until the close of the war or until the devil's army were banished to the earth. To have left his post and resigned his command before the enemy was overcome would have been only a partial victory, and the trial in the first estate would have been incomplete. Nothing short of the full discomfiture 
of the enemy's forces. I have never seen that word in my life. Nothing short of a full discomfiture. Okay. Of the enemy's forces and their banishment from heaven would have rendered the victory complete. Nothing short of this would have entitled them to the praise of having kept their first estate. It is plain, therefore, that the war in heaven had ended before Michael left heaven and entered a body of flesh and bones under the name of Adam. When did this war in heaven commence? All the light we have upon this question has contained in modern revelations and those in ancient revelations which have been revealed anew through Joseph the seer. We quote the following from the book of Abraham. Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw those souls that they were good. And he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. And there stood one among them, that was like unto God. And he said unto those who were with him, we will go down for there is space there and we will take of these materials and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord God, their God shall command them. And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon and they who will keep not their first estate shall have no glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. And they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Um, and Emmett has looked up for me discomfiture. discomfiture. Um, it says it's a feeling of unease or embarrassment, awkwardness, um, according to Google Dictionary, <laughs> I suppose. Oh, he says it's Oxford. Oh, yeah, Oxford languages. Okay. So that is a very strange word, but thank you for looking it up. Um, hi. Can, hi. Hey, I had to unmute myself <laughs> again. I've been on the line for – I dropped, and I've been on the line for like 30 minutes, and Emmett didn't unmute me, so I don't know why oh. he is – I know, think he it's his phone having issues. Now. His well, he phone has isn't been doing... the issue. He's supposed to be sitting there by the monitor of our computer. Mm -hmm. He well, he has his studio. phone. He's listening to what I'm saying with his phone out um, okay. right there, and and I don't know why he just looked that up randomly for me because he knew it was a weird word and I didn't know what it meant. So that's okay. what he was doing, and he is doing Very the well, kitchen right now. He's doing dishes. Oh, okay. So that's why he's not watching the studio like I asked him to do because he's doing something else. Okay. All right. Well, I got the uh, the bracket fixed on the cell phone antenna. And oh, cool. I've been sitting here for 35 minutes. Uh, just sitting here. It looks like coal's coming out of the conveyor belt. It's coming out of the earth. But oh, cool. something's wrong with the loadout again. Oh, so. again? Yeah, three hours yesterday, four and a half hours last Wednesday. Uh, now we're in, you know, 35 minutes so far. Anyway, um, I wanted to say something about the sons of or the, the, the uh, morning star. Oh, and yeah, I, I thought you would want to talk was. about that. I don't know who – you. can you remember who said that? Like, where did that uh, – where did that come from? 
Like, who said that? Um, on here, it is saying, I need to go back a little bit. Um, so this is coming from Apostle Orson Pratt. It was published in the Seer. Orson Pratt is really, really, really smart. But Orson <laughs> Pratt does not know what he is talking about. I am not as smart as Orson Pratt. But I've gotten revelation on the subject, which gives me more intelligence than even he. Okay. Mm -hmm. The morning star, there are three. Three in the first presidency of this earth. God, hold on. God, the uh, creator, is called the father. God, the redeemer, is called the son. And God, the witness, is called the Holy Ghost. There are three dispensations. Yehovah our Elohim, who is not Jesus Christ, and that is not a title, that is his name, Yehovah, Jehovah. Uh, he, under the direction of the council of the gods or the mighty ones or the Elohim, told, uh, they told him to take Michael to come create the earth. And then when they get here, under the direction of Yehovah our Elohim, Michael creates the earth, which means in Hebrew that he organized the elements. Um, yeah, and then he took upon himself the name of Adam Amen, who is God the Eternal Father, and came down on this earth to people this earth with his children. He is the morning star. He is the first. He is the one that presided over the first dispensation of this earth. Did I just drop again? Am I still here? I still got you loud and clear. Okay. Um, anyway, so he came, and the first dispensation was his. The next dispensation in the meridian of time is the dispensation of the Redeemer, or the Son, who is Yeshua, or Yehoshua in Aramaic. Yeshua is the Hebrew Yehoshua is Aramaic. It's the same person. We call him Jesus Christ because of the transliteration um, of, of uh, words from one language to the other. So Jesus Christ in the book of Revelations is called the bright and morning star. He is not the morning star for this earth. He is the bright morning star. So the morning star comes in the morning of the history of the celestial earth. He has the first dispensation. That is Adam, who is God the creator or our father. God the redeemer comes in the noon of the history of this earth, and he is called the bright and morning star. Lucifer is the evening star, which in Hebrew is Hillel, and it means bearer of light and truth. Lucifer, in the pre-existence, fell. He fell. And he had his name and his title taken from him, and he was called after that the accuser of the brethren, or Hathatan, or Satan. Another was chosen to take the office of Hillel, or God the, the Witness, or Lucifer, the Light Bearer, or the Bringer of Light and Truth. 
and that's that's God the uh, that's God the witness. Jesus isn't the morning star. Jesus is the son of the morning star. So anyway, um, I, I just wanted to clarify that Orson Pratt can say all he wants about the matter. He did not okay. have revelation on it. He was just speculating. So anyway, okay, I'll mute myself. Um, I was again. trying to go back into it to look to see if there was, like, quotes that he derived it from or something. But from what I can tell, unless I go back in and read it all over again, um, there wasn't um, a scripture that he I was reading that out of. It was just from Orson Pratt. The, so anyways. The spirit, the spirit is telling me I need to say one other thing. Okay. When it's talking about Jesus Christ organizing or creating this earth, the word the word there in Hebrew is to organize. When Jesus Christ organized or created this earth, he's not organizing the elements. He is organizing the spirits before we come into our mortality. That's how he's the creator and the father is the creator because they organized before they came here. This word is misunderstood in the Hebrew or in the English because people don't go back to the original language and they don't understand the original language. The the original language of Jesus, he spoke Hebrew and he spoke Aramaic. And if you do not understand Hebrew or Aramaic, then later on when it gets translated into Greek and then Latin and then English or whatever language you read it in, it gets screwed up. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there because he is a creator, but he's not, he's not the creator in the, the sense that this earth was organized by the Father and Jesus organize the spirits before we all come into mortality. That's how that all works. So I'm going to mute myself. It looks like they're having us move now. So. Okay. And the Lord said, who shall I send? And one answered, like unto the son of man, here am I, send me. And another answered and said, here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry and kept not his first estate. And at that day, many followed after him. And then the Lord said, let us go down. And they went down at the beginning. And they organized and formed, that is the gods, the heavens and the earth. And the earth, after it was formed, was empty and desolate, because they had not formed anything but the earth. And the darkness reigned upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of the gods was brooding upon the faces of the water. In this divine history, we are informed that the rebellion commenced at the time that the heavenly hosts were counseling together concerning the formation of this earth and the peopling of the same. The rebellion, therefore, must have been raging from the time of the holding of this grand council until the foundations of the earth were laid, and probably, too, for some time after. But it must have been sometime during the period between the beginning of his creation and the completion of the same preparatory to the reception of Michael or Adam, that Satan and his army were overcome and banished into the earth. 
how long the period was intervening between the time of holding to the council and the beginning of this creation is not revealed. It may have been only a very short period, or it may have been millions of years. And again, how long it was from the commencement of the creation until Satan was cast out. It is not revealed. Because we do not know the length of time included in each day's work pertaining to the creation. Neither do we know on which of these days or periods he was cast out. It seems that Satan had proposed a plan to redeem all mankind that one soul should not be lost. And believing that his plan was superior to any other suggested in the council, he was determined to carry it into effect at all hazards. Hence, he said to the Lord, surely I will do it. Wherefore, give me thine honor. If Satan had permitted or been permitted to carry out his plan, he would either have destroyed the agency of man so that he could not commit sin or would have redeemed him in his sins and wickedness without any repentance or reformation of life. If the agency of man were destroyed, he would only act as he is acted upon, and consequently he would merely be a machine, and his actions would have neither merit or demerit, so far as he was concerned, and and could neither be punished nor rewarded, and would produce neither misery nor joy. Destroy the agency of man, and you destroy the the mainspring of his happiness. Again, take away the agency of man, and you deprive him of his intelligence. For intelligence is the original force or cause of action. It is a self-moving force, and all actions resulting from such a force must necessarily be free. If, therefore, the agency of man or his freedom of action be destroyed, you destroy his self-moving force, and if you deprive him of such force, you deprive him of intelligence. Therefore, agency is essential to the very existence of intelligence. This truth is clearly revealed in a revelation given to Joseph the seer, which reads as follows. All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also. There otherwise there is no existence. Behold, here is the agency of man. Doctrine and Covenants, section 83. It says par 5. DNC section 83, I would think it would be chapter 5, but it says par 5, so I'm not sure what is going on with that reference. The I plan think it's proposed an by the paragraph. Yeah, but Doctrine and Covenants section 83 doesn't go in paragraphs unless if this was before they, this was the original DNC section 85. Maybe. Good tip. Maybe. That's the plan weird. proposed, yeah, the plan proposed by the devil while he was yet in his first state or in heaven, was to destroy the agency of man, thereby depriving him of the intelligence which God had given to him. And by this process, man would be unable to do of his own accord, either good or evil. And Satan thought that he could thus redeem all mankind, that not one soul should be lost. He did not perceive that man redeemed after his plan would be a perfect idiot without the least glimmering of intelligence. Some perhaps may think we have misrepresented the intentions of the devil, for they can scarcely believe him to be so profoundly ignorant as to propose a plan which would, in its very nature, destroy the intelligence or knowledge of the human race. Such perhaps may argue that it is more reasonable to suppose that the devil intended to leave them to their agency, so far as doing good or evil is concerned, and that thus their intelligence would be retained, but that he designed to redeem them from the effects of their sins without any 
exercise of their agency in the act of repentance or reformation. Such a plan, we admit, would thwart the ends of justice and would admit unholy and sinful beings into the kingdom of God. Such beings would be redeemed in all their sins and would still be determined to pursue a sinful course. And such characters would turn a heaven into a hell and make themselves miserable and also all others with whom they were associated. But such a plan, though it destroys justice, does not destroy the agency of man. It is true that it redeems him without the exercise of his agency, but does not deprive him of it. But the revelation says that Satan desired to bring about the redemption of all mankind by the destruction of his agency. It reads thus, Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord God, have given him, and also that I should give unto him mine own power. However, wise Satan may have been, in some respects, this plan certainly was a very foolish one. Satan's sin does not appear to have consisted wholly in the foolishness of the plan, which he proposed before the Grand Council of Heaven. But in his stubbornness or unwillingness to yield to the superior light of the council, having devised the plan, he was determined to carry it into effect. Therefore, he sought to overthrow the kingdom and to usurp the power thereof in his own hands. Hence, he demanded of the Lord, saying, Give me thine honor, or, as the Lord expresses it himself in the above quotation, Satan rebelled against me and thought that I should give unto him mine own power. However foolish Satan's plan may appear to us, it must have appeared plausible to many of his brethren. They looked upon a theory which they supposed would redeem them all to be superior to all others. They either had not sufficient intelligence to judge of the consequences of the scheme destroying the agency of man or else they preferred to run the risk of the results rather than come under a plan founded upon the principles of justice and mercy which would punish and reward them according to their works. it may be that they were capable of discerning and judging righteously every scheme that was proposed but were careless and indifferent upon these subjects deciding with satan before they had made sufficient investigation and having taken sides they were determined to maintain their position it is not likely that the final decision of the con- contending armies took place immediately. Many, no doubt, were unsettled in their views, unstable in their minds, and undecided as to which force to join. There, there may have been a long period before the division line was so strictly drawn as to become unalterable. Laws, without doubt, were enacted and penalties affixed according to the nature of the offenses or crimes. Those who altogether turned from the Lord and were determined to maintain the cause of Satan and who proceeded to the utmost extreme wicked of wickedness placed themselves without the reach of redemption. Therefore, such were prohibited from entering into a secondary probationary state. And no other privilege of receiving bodies of flesh and bones, a second estate, to them would have been no advantage because they had sinned to the extent that the Spirit of the Lord had entirely left them and light and truth no longer dwelt in them. Therefore, they could not feel a disposition to repent. And if they had been permitted to enter another state of trial, they would have continued their unholy warfare. And also, if they had been permitted to receive fleshly bodies, they would have propagated their species and instilled into the minds of their children the same devilish principles which reigned in their own bosoms. Therefore, the Lord thrust them out of heaven and reserved them in chains of everlasting darkness until the judgment of the great day, which will come at the end of the earth. The number cast out were about one-third part, as revealed not only to John of the Isle of Patmos, 
on the Iowa Patnos, but also to Joseph the seer as follows. And it came to pass that Adam being tempted of the devil, for behold, the devil was before Adam, for he rebelled against me, saying, Give me thine honor, which is my power, and also a third part of the host of heaven turned he away from me because of their agency, and they were thrust down, and thus came the devil and his angels. And behold, there is a place prepared for them from the beginning, which place is hell. That's D&C, section 10, again, par 10, meaning paragraph maybe, I suppose. Among the two-thirds who remained, it is highly probable that there were many who were not valiant in the war, but whose sins were of such a nature that they could be forgiven through faith in the future sufferings of the only begotten of the Father. And through their sincere repentance and reformation, we see no impropriety in Jesus offering himself as an acceptable offering and sacrifice before the Father to atone for the sins of his brethren, committed not only in the second, but also in the first estate. Certain it was that the work which Jesus was to accomplish was known in the grand council where the rebellion broke out. It was known that man would sin in his second estate, for it was upon the subject of his redemption that the assembly became divided and which resulted in the war. John, the revelator, speaking of a certain power, says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Now, we may ask, why was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? If there were no persons who had sinned in their first estate that could be benefited by the sufferings of their elder brother, then we can see no reason for considering him at the early period. As already explained, the very fact that the atonement which was to be made in a future world was considered as already having been made seems to show that there were those who had sinned and who stood in need of the atonement. The nature of the sufferings of Christ was such that it could redeem the spirits of men as well as their bodies. The word of the Lord through Joseph the prophet to Martin Harris reads thus, I command you to repent, repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger and your sufferings be sore. How sore you know not, how exquisite you know, know not. Yea, how hard to bear you know not. For, behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer, if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer, even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men." That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 44, verse 2. Jesus suffered not only in body, but also in spirit. By the sufferings of his body, he atoned for the sins of man committed in and by the body. By the sufferings of his spirit, he atoned for the sins committed by the spirit. Hence, the atonement redeems both body and spirit. It is reasonable, therefore, to suppose that if spirits in the first estate sinned, they might be forgiven through their faith and repentance by virtue of the future sufferings of Christ. That the spirits of men did receive promises and gifts before the world began is clearly manifest in many parts of Scripture. 
the Apostle Paul writes as follows, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. That's Titus chapter 1, verse 2. God promised eternal life. When, he, when was this promise made? It was made before the world began. To whom was it made? It was made to the spirits of men who existed before the world began. We were comforted with the promises of God when we dwelt in his presence. We could then look upon the face of the firstborn and consider him as already slain. Or as Peter says, he that he verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. When we were in the, our spiritual state, all the grace or mercy we received was because of Christ. Paul, in speaking of God, says, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. According to this passage and the preceding ones, Paul, Timothy, Titus, and others existed before the world began. And in that interior existence, God made promises unto them of eternal life and also gave them grace in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul also says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Now, if the apostles and others were called with an unholy calling, with an holy calling, and chosen Christ before the foundation of the world and actually received grace in Christ and had the promise of eternal life made to them before the world began, then should it be thought incredible that in and through Christ they also receive forgiveness of sins which they have committed in that pre-existing state? If all those two-thirds who kept their first estate were equally valiant in the war and equally faithful, why should some of them be called and chosen in their spiritual estate to hold responsible stations and offices in this world, while others were not? If there were none of those spirits who sinned, why were the apostles, when they existed in their previous state, chosen to be blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? All these passages seem to convey an idea that there were callings, choosings, ordinances, promises, predestinations, elections, and appointments made before the world began. The same idea is also conveyed in the quotation which we have already made from the book of Abraham. Now the Lord had shewn unto me, Abraham, the intelligence that were organized before the world was, and among all these there were many of the noble and great ones, and God saw these souls that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers, for he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them, thou wast chosen before thou wast born. That's an end quote, which means this um, next part is actually, again, Orson Pratt. There's 90 seconds left in the radio program right now, so if you want to call in to listen to the rest of this on um, live, then you can dial 917-889-8827. Again, that number is 917-889-8827. Now, is there not reason to believe that the nobility or greatness which many of these spirits possessed was obtained by faithfulness to the cause of God? Was it not because of their righteousness that they were appointed to be the Lord's rulers? How did Abraham become one of the noble and great spirits? 
How came the Lord to choose Abraham before he was born? If we had an answer to these questions, we should very probably find that Abraham stood up valiantly for the Son of God at the time the rebellion broke out, and that because of his integrity and righteousness, the Lord chose him before he was born to hold authority and power in his second estate, to become the father of the faithful, and to be a blessing to all nations. All the spirits, when they come here, they are, or if they have ever committed sins, they are repented, have repented, and obtained forgiveness through faith in the future sacrifice of the Lamb, so far as innocency is concerned. They enters, it says enters, they enters this world alike. But so far as circumstances are concerned, they are not alike. One class of spirits are permitted to come into the world in an age when the priesthood and kingdom of God are on the earth. And they hear and receive the gospel. Others enter the world in an age of darkness and are educated in foolish and erroneous doctrines. Some are born among the people of God and are brought up in the right way. Others are born among the heathen and taught to worship idols. Some spirits take bodies in the lineage of the chosen seed through whom the priesthood is transferred others receive bodies among the african negroes or in the lineage of canaan whose descendants were cursed pertaining to the priesthood now if all the spirits were equally faithful in their first estate and keeping the laws thereof why are they placed in such dissimilar circumstances in their second estate why are some placed in circumstances where they are taught of god become rulers kings and priests and finally are exalted to all the fullness of celestial glory, while others are taught in all kinds of wickedness and never hear the gospel till they hear it in prison after death. And in the resurrection, receive not a celestial glory, but terrestrial. If rewards and punishments are a result of good and evil actions, then it would seem that the good and evil circumstances under which the spirits enter this world must depend upon the good and evil actions which they had done in the previous world. Um, Before even going on to that, I'm just going to say, um, then that would contradict the scripture that was already read at the beginning part of this chapter, because when somebody comes here um, and their body is already malformed or deformed, or when, um, when you come here given to parents who are less than amazing, (laughs) um, and you are born into circumstances that are um, difficult or harder, I would say that that is not because of something you did in the previous life, but it is um, where you are placed to help you grow and to learn and to help you um, become a stronger um, individual and help you to um, be smart and learn um, as God has already learned and already knows. That's to help to make you wiser. However, I will continue reading to see what um, Orson Pratt believes, or is that who this was again? Um, Apostle Orson Pratt, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll see if that's where he's going with this. If not, then I guess I'll agree to disagree. Our condition when we enter the next world will depend on our conduct here. Yeah, so I completely disagree with him. Well, not with, like, what's going to happen next, but he's saying that in our first estate we are put in the circumstances that we are put in because of things that we did wrong. So if you were not doing everything correctly or right, you are not a king here, or you are not born of goodly parents, or 
something of the like. Anyways, by analogy then, does not our condition when we enter this world depend on our conduct before we were born? Does not the question which the apostles put to the Savior respecting the man who was born blind show that they considered it possible for a man to sin before he was born? Right, that's the scripture I was just talking about. Right, they believe it is possible for him to sin before he was born. Um, but Christ said the reason the child was born um, the way that he was blind um, was not because of anything he did. It was so that the Lord could teach others. So that um, it was for a learning experience is what it says. Um, well, and that's kind of exactly what I was just saying. <laughs> he probably agreed to it because we all have to go through different experiences. But I don't think... I don't think Orson Pratt really understood multiple mortal probations, even though he, you know, had the lecture. I mean, he was probably aware of the lecture at the Grove, but I don't know. I don't, it doesn't sound like he understood uh, the concept of multiple mortal probations. So we all go through different things so that we yeah, can Yeah, did learn, you understand you know? what I was saying? Yeah, that's what I was saying. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, so, um, just like he was saying, the, the child wasn't born blind because of something that he did in the preexistence that made him him blind. Um, he was put that way so that he could teach, that he was a teaching example, so that he could be healed, so God could show the world. That's why that the child was born blind. There was a reason and a cause, but it wasn't because yeah. of that child. Well, Likewise, we too. also are born. Hold on one second. Just let me finish my thought. It was going somewhere, I swear. <laughs> Um, and likewise, we are born into the situations that we are born in so that God can show and teach and help us to learn and show and teach others from the experience by which we suffer, we learn. And you learn better if you are going through those things and in the situation, like it was saying at the beginning of this chapter. We um, could not learn what it was like to be in a mortal body and have a mortal body when we didn't go through that experience. And so that's what we're doing. We're going through that experience. Thank you, Huntington. the house today. Uh, you aren't unmuted, just so you know, so I can hear all of that you're having to say. Hello? Can you hear me? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I forgot thanks. to okay. myself. Kent was talking yeah, to me, noticed. even though Kent knows Hi, Kent. that okay. I'm on the radio show. I passed him, but I can't understand him on his radio. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry, what I was going to say was mm-hmm. that, like, yep. the Jews understood that there was, because they they understood this concept, or they wouldn't have asked the question. You know what I mean? Like, they understood that, yeah, that the possibility that he sinned before he was born, uh, and that's why he was blind, and they were asking him about it, because they understood that there is a preexistence of the spirit where the modern Christian will deny those things, even though um, God told Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiahu, before uh, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Well, they'll say, well, he knew that he was going to create Jeremiah, but he didn't exist before that. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, scripture is not for your own private interpretation. If you don't get a revelation on it, They'd know what God's interpretation is. Maybe you should shut up about it. But, you know, the whole Christian world won't do that. 
you know, they go and, you know, whatever they were taught by their pastors and ministers is what they're going to teach. So, but the Jews did understand this concept of the preexistence of spirits and the fact that a spirit can send before it's born. So anyway, uh, go ahead, Kim. Okay. Uh, thanks for the commentary in the moment of breathing because I've been reading straight through for a while. Um, anyways, so though I agree with a lot of things that he is saying, um, some of it, it is unreasonable. And um, also, a lot of things are speculation. So when you read scripture, you know, it's not for private interpretation. You need to ask God whether or not you are interpreting the correct um, meaning of the scriptures. Because a lot of times, um, you can, it can mean something completely different to you. That's why when you pray and when you're asking for your own revelation and when you are having your personal revelation or relationship sorry, with God, um, it is important for you to be reading his scripture and to be um, researching and trying to help him to be able to talk to you. And um, he will lead you and guide you to what it is that you are looking for and what you're asking um, about. And it might mean something different to you. He will speak, you know, the spirit, um, God will speak to your heart and will help you to understand it um, as it was meant. So um, as I would say, um, you should be praying while going through your own scripture study and also um, with reading and doing your own further research on this subject. Let me continue on, though. They considered it reasonable that a person should be born blind as a penalty for the sins which he had committed before he was born. Though the spirits are all innocent when they come here, it may not be possible that they are forgiven and made innocent on the condition that they shall enter this world under circumstances either favorable or unfavorable according to the nature of their sins. Do not the inhabitants of the world who are raised from the dead differ in glory as one star differs from another? Is it not necessary that they should be forgiven of all their sins and made innocent before they can receive the Holy Ghost or any degree of glory? And do not the differences of their condition in the resurrection depend upon the nature of their actions in this life? If then they must be forgiven and become innocent before they can ever even enter a kingdom of glory, and if when they do enter there, it is under great variety of circumstances, depending on the act, their actions here, then we may from analogy reason, that's what this is, it's a bunch of reasoning, like maybe because of this, then that. So he's not actually knowing, he's just guessing. Then we may from analogy reason that the spirits must be forgiven and become innocent before they can even come here. And that when they do come, it will be under a great variety of conditions depending on their actions in a previous state. This is all Orcrat um, supposing. That's what this is. The division line between permanently drawn between Michael's and the devil's forces. The latter were overpowered and cast down, and the whole heavens wept over their fall. A description of this is given in a vision shown to Joseph the seer and Sidney Rigdon. We give the following extract. And this we saw also and bear record that an angel of God who was in authority in the presence of God, who rebelled against the only begotten son, whom the father loved and who was in the bosom of the father was thrust down from the presence of God and the son and was called perdition for the heavens wept over him. He was Lucifer, a son of the morning and we beheld and lo, he is fallen, is fallen. Even a son of the morning. That's Doctrine and Covenants chapter 92, verse three. 
peace be being restored in heaven and all who remained, having kept their first estate and overcoming Satan, the next great work to be accomplished was to place these spirits upon the new earth in tabernacles of flesh and bones, where they all could pass through another series of trials and meet their common enemy upon the new grounds. And if they should succeed in this second warfare and overcome the vanquish and vanquish the hosts of hell, they were to be counted worthy to inherit all things and to become equal with their father in glory and power and in might and in dominion. The heaven, earth, animals, vegetables, and all things pertaining to this creation being finished, the Lord pronounced the whole very good. Sorrow, misery, sickness, pain, and death were unknown. Immortality was stamped upon man and the whole animal kingdom. If any living creature had been subject to death or any manner of pain, it would not have been perfect in its organization. It could not have been pronounced good. Neither would it have been consistent as the work of all wise and supremely good being. Perfection characterizes all the works of God. Therefore, all the tabernacles which he made from the dust must have been capable of eternal endurance. There must have been something connected with these fleshly tabernacles which was capable of preserving them in immortality. If spirits on their first estate did not know good from evil, why were they thrust down and bound with everlasting chains of darkness? For doing that which they did not know to be evil. Would any parent here in this world banish his children everlastingly from his presence without any hopes of recovery for doing those things which they did not know to be evil? Our hearts would revolt at the very idea of such injustice in an earthly parent. Shall we then represent God as more unjust than man? Shall we say that he will punish with everlasting punishment the rebellious angels without a sufficient cause? Shall he doom them to endless misery for acts which they did not know to be evil? Our hearts would revolt at the very idea of such injustice in an earthly parent. Shall we then represent God as more unjust than man? Shall we say that he will punish with everlasting punishment the rebellious angels without a sufficient cause? Shall he doom them to endless misery for acts which they did not know to be evil? It is evident then that the angels in their first estate knew good and evil and therefore were subjects of reward and punishment for their acts. Why was man deprived of all his former knowledge when he left the spirit world and came here? It was in order that he might have a second trial or probation under new circumstances and conditions to which he had not previously been subject. Man, being without the knowledge of good and evil, would be in a state of innocence, and being immortal, not subject to pain or death, he would be entirely ignorant concerning the nature of pain or misery. It could not be described to him so as to convey to his mind the least idea of its nature. Nothing short of suffering pain could impart to him a knowledge respecting it. A knowledge of pain never could have been derived from the reasoning faculties, neither could they have derived it from observation. If a man before the fall had no knowledge of misery, it is evident that he also must have been ignorant of the nature of happiness. For, although placed in circumstances where there is no misery, yet he does not realize that this condition is a condition of happiness. No one could explain to him the nature of happiness. The idea of happiness never could enter his mind until he could form an idea of the state or condition of the opposite nature. It was necessary, therefore, for them to experience pain or misery that they might discern and appreciate happiness. 
Christ was considered as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world to atone for the original sin of Adam. Therefore, by transgression, he obtained knowledge indispensably necessary to his exaltation and happiness. And by the atonement, his sin was forgiven, and he restored to the favor of God, possessing the requisite qualifications to enjoy his redemption and the society of beings who knew good and evil. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. God and the heavenly host had attained to the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore they were capable of enjoying happiness and judging righteously according to the principles of right and wrong, justice and mercy. The son did not consider death to be too great a sacrifice. In order that man might be raised the very depths of ignorance and placed on equal footing with the gods, as far as it regards good and evil and all their unaccompanying, uh, accompanying, I'm sorry, I can't even talk now, and all their accompanying, I cannot say that word, <laughs> accompanying, there we go, consequences. When, therefore, the infant spirit is first born in the heavenly world, that this is not a commitment or a commencement of its capacities. Each particle eternally exists prior to this organization. How many different laws these particles have acted under during the endless school of experience through which they have passed is not known to us. What degree of knowledge they have passed or they have obtained by experience previous to their organization in the womb of the celestial female is not revealed. One thing is certain. The particles that enter into the organization of the infant spirit are placed in a new sphere of active action. The laws to govern them in this new and superior condition must be different from any laws under which they had previously acted. It seems far more consistent to believe that an infinite knowledge has from all eternity existed somewhere, either in organized personages or in disorganized materials. The light and intelligence and truth which each saint will then possess in fullness was not created, neither indeed can be, but they were from all eternity. How very different in their nature is light and truth from substance. A substance can only be in one place at a time, while intelligence or truth can be in all worlds at the same instant. A substance cannot be divided and be in part be taken to some other place without dis- diminishing the original quantity from which it was taken. While different portions of light and truth may be imparted to other beings in other places without diminishing in the least the foundation from which they are derived. We have dwelt upon this subject rather longer than what we had first intended because we consider it a principle. Sorry, one second. I'm trying to help myself out here. We consider it a principle which should be well understood by the saints, not only for our own benefit, but that we may be able to teach others correctly. It is for this purpose that we have dwelt so long upon the pre-existence of man in order that we may the more clearly understand not only our heavenly and godlike origin, but the grand system of laws by which God originates and prepares tabernacles for his own residence in which the fullness of his wisdom, power, and glory are manifested. Oh, how great and how marvelous are the ways of God and his plans, which he has adopted for the salvation and glorification of his intelligent offspring. Who can understand these things without rejoicing by day and by night? 
and who can understand the works of our God and the mysteries of his kingdom unless he is enlightened by the light of the Holy Spirit. Well, did the Apostle Paul say, the natural man knoweth not the things of God because they, spiritually, they are spiritually discerned? But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, even the deep things of God. Well, did our Savior say that the Spirit of truth should guide his disciples into all truth, should take of the things of the Father, and should show them unto his people, should show them things to come, and thus make them revelators and prophets. Oh, that mankind would consider upon these things. Oh, that they would come unto God like many in days of old. And learn of him now, as they did then. Oh, that they would reflect upon their heavenly origin and what may be their future destiny if they would only claim through obedience and faith the high privileges set before them. Oh, that they knew what belongs to their peace and welfare both here and hereafter. But they know not. They are like the beast that perisheth, for whom slaughter is prepared, and he knoweth it not. Even so, it is with this generation they know nothing, only what they know naturally. They have denied the necessity of present revelation. Therefore, all spiritual light and heavenly knowledge are withheld from them, and they will bring swift destruction upon themselves and perish in their sins. And this causes my heart to be sorrowful, and I mourn over the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds by day and by night. And I labor and toil, and also my brethren, to recover them, but their hearts are so fully set within them to do evil, and they must soon be ripened for the destructions decreed upon the nations in the latter days. We have in this article on preexistence tracked, traced men back to his origin in the heavenly world as an infant spirit. We have shown that this spirit was begotten and born by celestial parents long anterior to the formation of this creation. We have shown that the great family of spirits had a probation and trial before they came here, that a third part of them fell and were cast out of heaven and were deprived of fleshly bodies, while the remainder have come forth in their successive generations to be people, to people this globe. We have shown that by keeping this their second estate, they will be perfected, glorified, and made gods like unto their father, God by whom their spirits were begotten, the dealing of God towards his children from the time they are firstborn in heaven through all their successive stages of existence until they are redeemed, perfected, and made gods is a pattern after which all other worlds are dealt with. All gods act upon the same that great general principles, and thus the course of each god is one eternal round. There will, of course, be a variety in all his works, but there will be no great deviations from the general laws which he has ordained. The creation, fall, and redemption of all future worlds with their inhabitants will be conducted upon the same general plan so that when one is learned, the great fundamental principles of the science of world-making, world-governing, and world-redemption will be understood. The father of our spirits has only been doing that which his progenitors did before him. Each succeeding generation of gods follow the example of the preceding ones. Each generation have their wives who raise up from the fruit of their loins immortal spirits when their families become numerous. They organize new worlds for them after the former patterns set before them. They place their families upon the same who fall as the inhabitants of previous worlds have fallen. 
They are redeemed after the pattern by which more ancient worlds have been redeemed. Thus will worlds and systems of worlds and gorgeous universes be multiplied in endless succession throughout the infinite depths of boundless space, some celestial, some terrestrial, and some celestial, differing in their glory as the apparent splendor of the shining luminaries of heaven differ. differ. All these will swarm with an infinite number of living, moving, animated beings from the minute, uh, the minutest uh, animacules that support or support by millions in a single drop of is water. That, up to, is it minutest? Yes, animated beings from the minutest <laughs> animacule, animalcules. <laughs> that sport by millions in a single drop of water up through every grade of existence to those almighty, all wise, and most glorious personages who exist in countless numbers governing and controlling all things. The end. Next time it will be Chapter 3, page 32, in the preexistence. It's going to be on Christian ignorance of the preexistence. Thank you for reading. I think the reason why we're both tired is because we've been stressed out about this house for the last two and a half years, and then finally come to a culmination today where we were able to finally sign and be done with the whole trying to get this thing placed ready and everything so that the bank would, you know, loan us the money so we could get the house. And I don't know about you, but I didn't good today. I don't know if you slept good last night. I didn't sleep good last night. My head hurts. I've had a headache since I woke up, and I woke up many times today, and it wasn't just because of Arius, our son, but I think it's just because I am stressed out about this house, you know? So, I I mean, this is supposed to be done. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Okay, I'm going to not talk for a little bit. (laughs) Okay. So we signed this house as a lease purchase in November, November 1st of 2019. Uh, I had drove past this house for many years before that, and it was empty the whole time that I, you know, for years and years. And the cell phone service, on my old phone wouldn't, like, I wouldn't get cell phone service until I got to about this house when I was coming home from work. So I would call Kim, and I would say, she'd say, where are you at? And I'd say, I'm driving past our house. And we said this for quite a while, a year or two, I don't know. And um, we wanted to buy this house, but we couldn't figure out who owned it. And then we, we looked up the tax information on it. And we found out the name of the person who owned it and what their, uh, where their tax information, or like where their information was being sent for their taxes. And we tried to get in contact with them, but the address was wrong. It wasn't wrong, it's just that they moved from Taylorsville up to Logan. So the, the, the husband and wife that lived in this house, the husband died five and a half years ago, I think. Uh, He had a stroke, and he built this house from the ground up. 
And, um, you know, I have a little 10-acre plot, did a little farming, you know, just erased his kids here. And um, anyway, so one day in 2019, we are coming home from a uh, celebration in July with lots of fireworks, and we saw that there was two cars in the, or one or two cars in the driveway, and Kim and I were driving separate vehicles, and she was like, oh, they're in the driveway. Do a U-turn because we passed this house. <laughs> and so we drove, we did a U-turn down the road, and we came back and, uh, and talked to them. And we worked it out, and it was supposed to be that we we're supposed to buy this house for 185000 um, and that 21 shares of water, no, 26 shares of water were supposed to come with it. And, uh, but, but during the lease purchase period, she was only letting us have five shares. She was going to retain uh, use over the five acres where hay is grown uh, for the neighbor to run the land. And we were like, that's fine. And that's supposed to be 21 shares of water for him for this land so he could run and do the hay. And we were fine with that because we didn't have equipment or any, you know, anything really. So we were like, okay. So for the last two and a half, and it was supposed to close November of uh, 2021. Well, they kept saying they were going to come down to do things to get it so that uh, a bank would, you know, loan us the money. There are things that they needed to do. It wasn't a buy as is type of thing. And even in the contract that we saw, it said that we were not allowed to do any, uh, anything but minor cosmetics, such as painting or something like that. So we couldn't do it, and they wouldn't do it. Anyway, July of 2021 comes along, and we're like, okay, this stuff needs to get done. So finally, the son of the widow started coming down and doing a little bit here and a little bit there and not really just a little bit here, you know. Anyway, so uh, we were not able to close in November because of them, not because of us. And what really irritates me about this whole thing is that it wasn't our fault that we were not able to close on time. They violated the contract three different ways. Um, but we were just doing whatever we could to get this flipping house so that we could, you know, get a loan on it. Anyway, um, so if we would have been able to sign in November, we would have had a 3.2 interest rate. We got a 5.7. Over the life of the loan, that's about $200,000 extra that we're paying because of their negligence. Not only that, uh, she never did uh, release the five shares of water, and that was so she said five shares of our, so she said 26 shares when we were agreeing to everything. And then when she gave us the lease purchase, uh, it said five shares. I said, why does it say five shares? I thought it was supposed to be 26. And she said, well, I'm retaining use of this land so that your neighbor could hay the land. And the 21 shares are going to be for his use until the end of the contract when you buy the home and I'm giving you five shares of water so you can have a nice big garden. Okay, well, that sounds fine. Anyway, uh, about two weeks ago, we find out that, oh, she's only going to give us five shares of water 
and I found out through loose lips of her realtor that she was planning on selling the 21 shares for $40,000. Well, that was supposed to be part of the purchase price of the house that we're, you know, that we just signed on today. So uh, not only are we paying $200,000 extra over the life of the loan because of their negligence, we're going to have to come up with $40,000, which I don't know where she's getting that number from because I think it's like $1,000 a share. And there's only 21 shares, but still that's a lot of extra money that we didn't intend. So Kim and I have been trying to, uh, you know, to get a tractor so that we can work the land, but we couldn't get any loans for a vehicle or a tractor until we closed on the house. So we've been in this, like, I don't know what you call it, dilemma, vortex. Um, Kim, is there anything you want to say about it? Like, I'm on wash plants, so if I break up for a second. No, I don't like to talk about it. It makes me frustrated, and I'm trying to not be frustrated. I'm sitting here holding my two-year-old while he's falling asleep in my arms. Well, he's being a little bit whiny because I stopped rocking him. And I don't know why people are dishonest. I don't know. Yeah, and I don't know, like, they would do that for their eternal um, soul. Like, why they would do that. I don't understand people. Yeah, it's basically like, hey, guess what? We had a $40,000 car and they stole it from us. And the way the contract reads, like, we could probably sue them. We've talked to two lawyers. Well, no, we talked to one lawyer, and we have another one. Uh, anyway, he's aware of the, the other one's aware of the situation because our neighbor had to sue them a while back because of water rights and trust uh, uh, some issues. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, they lost a lot of money in that lawsuit because of their dishonesty. We didn't know that before we signed the contract. Anyway, but um, so we have two lawyers that are telling us uh, they've looked at everything and they're telling us, yeah, we could sue them. But, like, then we come to the point where, okay, well, this woman is only 70 years old. Who knows how long she's got to live? I don't know what her finances are like. Uh, her husband was an electrician at the mine, so I don't know if he had a pension or retirement. You know, uh, so we're like, I don't know what we should do about this. I mean, we're, we only got five acres, or five shares of water for five acres. That'll give us about two weeks worth of water. Like, it's not a lot, you know. So, anyway, so we're kind of stressed out. And then when Kim was like, I'm just, I, I am honest with, I in, in my fellow dealing, or with my fellow man or whatever, and she's like, uh, this woman's all like, well, you never paid me for the touch that, you wanted to buy. And, like, Kim didn't say anything because she's just so disgusted by the thing. But this woman is trying to say my wife's dishonest, and she is not. Um, we didn't pay her for the hutch because she never told us how much she wanted for it. And it's been in our garage. She never moved it out. It's a heavy, heavy hutch, like, curio cabinet. And we would like to buy it. And we thought, well, hey, we'll buy it when we close on the house. You know, but then she's going to throw this in my wife's face about how she's dishonest because she never paid for something 
that we never, she never told us how much she wanted for it. She said she would sell it to us. That's the last thing we heard. You know, and this woman's deaf as well. Um, so I don't think she's completely deaf, but she's pretty deaf. So you can't talk to her on the phone. She never comes down. She's only been down once or twice since the contract, since we signed the contract. And now she's yanked 21 shares of water. And by the way, we haven't got the five shares, the certificates for the five shares of water that she did uh, say that was part of, the, like she had a new lease drawn up, whatever. Anyway, it's just stupid. And so we've been stressed out about that for quite some time. And like for all, all these two and a half years, we've been thinking, okay, when we get this property, we're going to like grow hay and we're going to have a big garden and we're going to save up and um, like food storage wise and we're going to like have a herd of goats and we're going to do all these things and and we just basically have the rug yanked out from underneath of us with that. But, you know, we did purchase the house today and it is what, you know, we said it was going to be and, you know, the Ten or twelve thousand dollars that we had in the through the lease purchase thing that we did, you know that all went towards the down payment of the house, and that's great, you know. So we're I'm happy that we're able to do this, and to tell you the truth, I don't ever want to move. I love this house. I love where I live. I love my job. I love my family, and I want them to be able to come back to this house, you know, through their whole lives. But we've been really stressed out and over this whole thing. Now, over the next three months, we're going to be uh, doing $30,000 worth of restoration to the house that wasn't necessary for us to get the loan, but new carpets, new windows, new doors, everything is old as dirt. And uh, yeah, so that's gonna be the next part of our little journey here. But, uh, and then we don't know what we're gonna do like about a tractor. Uh, one of our friends uh, has a tractor, and we were going to go pick it up as soon as we closed on the house. I don't know. I don't know what the deal is with that because I think that was on some land, and the implements to that tractor were on some land uh, of his friends. He was storing it at this at this other guy's house, and the guy had a heart attack and died. And my friends over the road, and by the time he was able to get back, like they had hauled off a bunch of his stuff. You know, and he was able to get some of it back, but I don't know how it's all going to work out. You know, so like, yeah, we're stressed now. But you know what I was thinking about it today? This property that God has given us, because like literally it, this, is a this is a miracle that we have this opportunity to have this 10-acre farm. Like just the way everything came together, you know. Um, but I think that they got greedy and realized that real estate prices were going up and they were locked into a contract and they were trying to do things to make it so that we couldn't get the house. Well, we've been working our butts off for the last three months trying to get everything done so that we can buy the house. You know, and I'm pretty sure we could take them to court uh, if, if they, because they were the ones that defaulted on the loan, not a, or the, the contract, not us. Anyway, but... Um, so, yeah, that's what we've been dealing with, and I am stressed out, and I've been stressed out, and I'm tired, and I have a headache, and 
uh, a little bit frustrated at Emmett because um, he has things that he gets out of by doing or helping with the radio show. And sorry. Um, anyway, he like and so he says, "Oh yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it." And then he doesn't even watch the studio, or he doesn't pay attention, you know. And um, it makes it difficult on me because I I can't be playing with the studio. I'm driving my semi truck. You know, and so, and then just, I don't know. Anyway, so I was irritated earlier, and I still am irritated because he is doing what he's doing. But, you know, I have to look at the blessings. Like, we were able to get this house, um, which is worth a lot more money today than when we signed the contract. Now, when we signed the contract, the appraisal of the house was what, you know, it appraised for so, so much, you know. But, um and it, the other thing that irritates me about the whole thing is like, okay, so now it's worth a lot more than what we had to get the loan out for. But I'm not going to sell the place, so I don't care how much it's worth. This is where I'm going to live. I don't care if the house is worth $10 million. Right? This is where I live. You know, and um, and the other thing, too, like, okay, if the value of the house is more, even though nothing changed but the stupid economy, uh, then they, they're going to charge us more for insurance, and then they're going to charge us more for taxes. And the taxes on this house, because of the green belt, were a little over $500 a year two and a half years ago. And now they're up to like $1,200 a year because of the increase in the value of the land in the house. You know, and it's like, it's just stupid. It, it irritates the crap out of me, but... It is what it is, you know, and I'm just, I am happy that we're able to get this place and live here. So, anyway, um, is Emmett actually watching the studio or is he doing something else again? I'm here. I'm watching it. Okay. I'm doing stuff while I'm watching it, but I'm still watching it. (laughs) Okay. All right, well, so uh, we'll be back on tomorrow with Chapter 3, maybe. I don't know if I'm going to do a radio show tomorrow. We'll see what happens. I'm just to the point where, like, you know what, nobody listens, nobody calls. And uh, maybe I'll just, you know, hey, this is a live radio show. I did that for a reason. And uh, I wanted to have discussions with people. But, uh, you know, hey, they're going to ignore me. Then why should I bother? So I might just start going back to podcasts, and I'll release them when I get them done. Um, I'll pray about it, and Kim and I will talk about it. I know that she does like to read, but we could read together when we have time together and record it for a podcast. It doesn't need to be a live radio show every day. Because um, right, what's the point? I mean, my friend... Um, Joshua, he said that, uh, you know, if the family's listening, then then that's beneficial, you know. And, yeah, and I, I'm grateful for that. But what my problem is is, okay, nobody listens. I've been given specific clear warnings to tell people and specific clear war- uh, things to share with people. And, like, I've been told that if they will not accept me as as 
a witness of the Father, they won't be accepted. And I'm not the one that made that up. He said it. The Father said it. And so I know what rejecting me is. But most people, they don't know. They think, oh, this guy's just a crazy false prophet. You know, like just before Jeremiah uh, had all of the things happen that he was telling were going to happen, they spit on him and they ignored him or whatever they did, you know. And and then later on, the ones that were still alive were like, oh, man, Jeremiah, he told the truth, you know. And it's going to be that way with me, and I'll be vindicated that it will be of little use to most of the people listening to this program because they don't listen. They don't accept me. They don't come to do the, or get the ordinances. They don't listen to, you know, me to, warning them to leave the cities and to gather, you know. So, and like to he who has been warned, it is given for him to warn his neighbor. And I know all of that, but you know what? I've warned and warned and warned, and the blood is on your garment. And uh, I'm just tired of it all. Anyway, um, I guess we'll be done with the program. Kim, I'll call you as soon as I get um, as soon as the program's over with. I'm going into Emory County now, so it's going to break up. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care. Emmett, do the music. Mm-hmm.